Ever wondered what powers the world of your favorite superheroes? Dive into Understanding Superhero Comic Books, the definitive guide that unravels the mystery. It plunges into the captivating world of spandex, superpowers, and the masterminds who conceive them. Trace the origins and evolution of superhero comics, fueled by influences from Bela Lugosi's enigmatic charm, Errol Flynn's daring exploits, and the early mesmerizing magicians. Witness Batman, Wonder Woman, Captain America, and more as they navigate societal shifts, reflecting our world within their epic tales. By Alex Grand's Understanding Superhero Comic Books, available now. Welcome back to the Comic Book Historians Podcast. I'm your host, Alex Grant. Today, we have another installment of the David Armstrong interviews. Now, David Armstrong interviewed Joe Kubert in 1997 on set at San Diego Comic-Con, discussing his childhood strip, pulp influences, entering comics in the early 1940s as a high school student, working with people like Harry Shorten, Frank Z. Temerson, Norman Moore, the 3D comic book craze of the 1950s, eventually working over at DC Comics and is obviously very famous for drawing Hawkman, Enemy Ace, and Our Army at War. He eventually started the Joe Kubert School, which became a real passion for Joe to teach people the building block skills of working in the comic book field. We have David Armstrong to thank for the quality and sincerity in these interviews. David had already formed a lot of relationships with these Golden Age and Silver Age greats well before these interviews were recorded. And so a lot of that kinship and friendship is shown here as well. And that is uh, one of many positive observations I made while digitizing, remastering, and editing these interviews into podcast form. David is a true friend of fandom for sharing this with our audience here at the Comic Book Historians Podcast. So without further ado, David Arm Armstrong, take it away, starting with when Joe Kubert first started to draw. From the earliest times that I can remember, and my, I guess my family, my mother and father verified it uh, very often, I started to draw when, as soon as I could hold a pencil. I was maybe two or three years old. And that's not unusual. I think most people who do the kind of stuff that I do uh, start rather early. It's, it, it's not something that you just like to do. It becomes a compulsion. I had been drawing as I said, uh, from a very young age. And I had just a natural inclination towards what was then newspaper strips, newspaper comics. People who really inspired me to do this kind of work, and I come to admire them more and more. As I get older, they get better. Uh, guys like Hal Foster and uh, Alex Raymond and uh, Milt Kniff. And these were the people who uh, generated the kind of... Uh, push and enthusiasm and what I wanted to do. I don't know why. I'd look at their stuff and, uh, God, it, it, it seemed to create a whole world, a different world around me completely. To me, uh, Tarzan, as was done by Foster, was a real person. I can even to today remember the smell of the newspapers when I was reading that stuff. Alex Raymond's Flash Gordon appeared in the New York Journal American. It was a large size newspaper and I remember on a weekend I could lay down on the floor and practically wrap the whole newspaper around me so that it really did almost physically reflect a complete world. And I try to emulate this stuff. I try to, uh, these were the things that influenced me, but more than influenced me, kind of encouraged me to want to do that same kind of work. And I'd copy and draw their material 
and try to get a feel, or I didn't realize it, of course, at that time, but I, was, I guess I was analyzing what the heck was going on underneath the drawing by doing just that. And I, I've, I've loved being a cartoonist all my life, and I guess that's the way I was introduced to it. Did you have specific favorites in terms of stories, books, or um, feature films oh, yeah. in terms of style, the writing style and, and the visual style? I loved Kipling's, uh, especially Jungle Tales, Mowgli and Tiger and Shere Khan and all of that. I guess the correlation between that and uh, Tarzan uh, was something that I understood pretty early on. It was those kinds of adventure stories that... Uh, that kind of stimulated the imagination to want to draw these pictures. Yeah, I, I, I read a heck of a lot when I was in school, uh, in grammar school, going into junior high school and high school. I'd frequent the library, not so much to widen an education, but to see more stuff, to see uh, physically, graphically, those things that perhaps at that, that age I couldn't get to see uh, firsthand. Uh, looking at uh, Michelangelo's Sistine Chapel and Rembrandt's paintings and a whole slew of stuff were absolutely inspirational. I realized very early on the gap between the kind of stuff that I was doing on the paper and the stuff that I was looking at, but it sure as hell was inspirational. Well, how did you get into the business? Well, I, I got into the business uh, in a kind of a fortuitous uh, fashion. I was in junior high school. I guess I was about 11 years old at that time. I had always been drawing. I'd always been doing the cartoons and doing drawings in school. And one of my buddies in junior high school at that time, as I say, I was about 11 years old, happened to be a, a nephew or a cousin, some sort of a relation with the people that were producing comic books at that time. MLJ, which was the forerunner of Archie Comics. They were on Canal Street in New York. I, at that time, lived in East New York in, in Brooklyn. While I was attending school, all my buddies, the guys that I was with in school, kind of elevated me because I could draw. It's almost like being a magician. Here, gee, I could take a pencil and draw a face. And the other guys, you know, my, my school chums will be looking at me and saying, well, gee, I can't do that. You can do it, and I can. So it, it put me at that level. But one of my buddies, as I mentioned before, was a relative to the MLJ group. I said, hey, Joe, you, you do some really nice stuff. Why don't you go up there and uh, uh, maybe do some work? And this was just at the very beginning, just at the very birth of, of comic books. Superman had just uh, started, I guess, let's see, I was 11 at that time. Got a, a hunk of newspaper, and I put some drawings into it so it shouldn't get messed up. And uh, I took the subway into New York. As I say, I was about 11 years old. And um, the subways are a nickel at that time. And they were absolutely safe, I guess, else my folks would never have let me get on it. And I went up there, and I was greeted so warmly and so nicely by uh, the people who were working up at this place. There was a guy by the name of Harry Shorten who... Uh, was a sort of an editor and a writer up there. And when I brought the stuff up, and here, as I say, this obnoxious 11-year-old kid comes up with a newspaper full of, of drawings, and I showed it to him. I didn't. I was too naive and simple to be scared. I mean, it was, it was just something that I just went ahead and did. And he was kind enough to allow me to get into this bullpen area where there were about three or four different artists. The first time I had ever seen real live commercial artists, cartoonists, at work, because I didn't know what kind of paper you use or pencil. I had just done sketches and pencil and so on. He said, come on, kid, take a look around, and maybe these guys can give you a couple of clues. 
And that actually is what occurred. It was at that time I met a guy by the name of Mort Meskin. Charlie Biro happened to be up there. Guys who later on became my friends, people I worked with, and so on and so forth. And I was my first introduction into the business. And I fell into it just because I just went ahead and did it. Not of any planning or forethought or any kind of uh, inspirations or ideas that I was going to make a living at it never even entered my mind. It was just learning a little bit more and finding out about what this whole thing was, was about. And every guy that I'd come across from that time on, like Will and other people, helped me. I don't remember one time that anybody in my business ever turned their backs on me. I don't remember any time either when the fact that I may not have been dressed so well or I had torn pants or my shoes were falling out or whatever. They were looking at my work and they recognized the fact that I was really dedicated to what it was. I loved what I was doing and it was evident with the work I showed them and my reaction to what they were telling me. So you obviously you got a chance to meet these artists. Did you get a chance to see them more regularly so you get a chance to have someone critique your work? No, I, I didn't even think uh, that they're critiquing my work or checking it over. It didn't even enter my mind. And the only times I saw them was when I went up to the office. That first time that I went up was the beginning of it all for me. Because after that, the editor that let me watch the other artists work said, well, when you do some more drawings, kid, come on up and show it to me and they'll look at it again. And so, and that's the way it all occurred. So when did you get your first check for your first piece of work? That I must have been about 12, 12 and a half, because I had been consistently working. It was for a, an editor by the name of Temerson, and he was Holyoke Publishing at that time. He was in an office the size of about a third of this room, and he was a publisher, kind and crazy enough to purchase a six-page story from me. Differing from Will, me and I guess a whole slew of other guys who came into the business really very rarely wrote our own stuff. Usually, they had a staff of writers, and I guess that actually resulted because there was a lot of work that had to be done. If you have one guy writing and then another guy who's drawing, you get twice as much work done because they're both working at the same time. And the writer has more of an ability to put the stuff down on paper more quickly. The artist perhaps has an affinity more with the graphics and the drawing and get a heck of a lot more work done. So that when I started out and for a long, long time afterwards, the writing was done by someone else. He handed me a script. Mr. Temerson handed me a script. Here, kid, take this home. You get five bucks a page for it. Wow, five bucks a page. That was a lot of dough at that time. It was almost more than my father made. So that was kind of the beginning. I was lucky enough to be able to learn on the job. Uh, I should have given him five bucks a page to, <laughs> to print the goddamn stuff. But. Now, did working during your school years, getting away to doing schoolwork? <laughs> <laughs> That's a... That's a very good point. It's a question that very few people ask, and it's one that I don't like to answer, but since all my kids are out of school, I can answer it honestly. Well, what happened was I would go to school perhaps two days a week, three days a week. The rest of the time, I'd be either home working or I'd take off and use that time instead of going to school to make the rounds at the publishers. The transition from junior high school to high school, I started attending the High School of Music and Art, which was up on 135th Street in Manhattan, and I still lived in Brooklyn. It was about an hour and a half trip. But there was a spread, and there was a lot of people I could see between 135th Street and where I had to go home. And I also came in contact at that time with a, a kid by the name of Norman Mora, who eventually became my partner, and we did a heck of a lot of work together. But he and I would meet before the homeroom class, and Norman would say, well, do we go to school today, or do we make the rounds? There wasn't even a question about it. We just 
who kind of walk out of school and go down and go from place to place. And there were perhaps 20 different publishers around at that time. And we would just hit every one of them, checking out to see if they'd see us or calling beforehand. Just knock on a door and say, well, I'd like to show you our work. We'd like to get a job. And like I say, we were so naive and innocent and dumb that we didn't realize that what we were doing was... Uh, uh, we should be afraid of what we were doing, or we should have any kind of temerity about it. Were there any publishers that were tough to crack that took oh, yeah. a long time to get the first job, and you knew that, that was your goal, and that's what you wanted to do? Yeah, there were, there were publishers. I say there were about 20 all around, but there were large ones. Uh, DC, Superman Comics, uh, was around at that time, and that was the big nut to crack if we could ever get a job there. There were others, but there were, uh, again, as there are today, I guess, there were smaller companies uh, where a guy could get a toehold in and kind of learn on the job. Business in those years was really quite different from what it is today. At that time, they were putting out 64-page magazines for 10 cents. They had to put out 64 pages of material so they could well afford to take 10 of those pages and give it to a guy like me who knew absolutely nothing about what the heck he was doing. And uh, just as a throwaway, they got the pages at a, a lower rate, a much lower rate, of course. But it gave me a tremendous opportunity to learn what this whole thing was all about. That doesn't exist today. There are perhaps uh, 20 or 22 pages in a magazine. The rest of them carry ads. They can't afford to give any of those pages of the graphics of the, uh, of the story of the artwork to somebody just to test them out. It's got to be the best stuff that they're capable of getting. So who gave you your first job at DC? Our earliest jobs were mostly inking on somebody else's work. I was fortunate enough, later on I had met, as I mentioned before, Mort Meskin, the first office I came into. Later on, I was inking on uh, the material that he was doing, Vigilante and Johnny Quick and things like that. I also did inking on um, Jack Kirby's uh, Newsboy Legion. I was lucky enough just to fall into those things naive enough not to be scared when I sat down to ink on their work. I wasn't intimidated by it for some strange, weird reason. I recall vividly Mort Meskin's pencils, which were absolutely fantastic. They were paintings in a pencil form. And I just blithely sat down and inked over his work. And he, again, was very kind. I'd ask him, I think I was maybe 15 or something at the time, I'd say, how am I doing? Am I ruining, you know, can you tell me anything that I can do this stuff a little better? Nah, kid, you're doing this fine. Don't worry about it. And, I mean, they were just great. So you graduated high school. Yeah. And then you already got a living when you graduated yeah. high school. Yeah, And did you have a partner when you graduated high school? No. Um, the partnership had started after, well after high school. And the partnership that I had with Norm, working together with him, Norm Mora, wasn't anything formal at all. We just, we just fell into uh, that kind of a system. We liked being together. We liked working together. We liked knocking ideas off of one another. But if a, a job came up, for instance, Norm very early on started working with uh, Byron Wood, crime comics, Daredevil, Crime Buster, and so on. He probably got to work earlier than I, that is, with a, a more of a solid routine. At that time, there was no assurance that you were going to keep on working. You did the first job when you brought it in. If the guy didn't have a script for you, well, you started looking around someplace else to get the next story. There was nothing on a contractual basis. But if Norm got the job, he took off in his direction to do his work. When I got a job, I would take off to do mine. But early on, I would imagine that uh, subconsciously it was as a result of what I saw uh, with Will Eisner and what the heck he was doing. 
early on, I, I felt that the way to go would be to have some sort of control over the stuff that I was doing so that it could come out with some sort of regularity and kind of tie up uh, with someone so that I could schedule books on a regular basis to be coming out. At that time was when Norm and I, I guess I was about 18 or 19 at the time, we merged together uh, and we started putting out some stuff. That was before I went into the Army. Norman had uh, some family ties to help you get the business going. Which was amazing. This was, of course, after I just skipped by World War II during the Korean War. I was in from 50 to 52. Norm, however, had gotten caught at the tail end of World War II. And while he was out in California, California at a USL shindig, he met a red-haired girl that he fell in love with who happened to be the daughter of Mo Howard, one of the Three Stooges, and he had taken up residence in California. We still kept in contact and we were still kind of dreaming of being able to work together at some time. Uh, when I finally got out of the Army, I, first thing I did, my wife and I took a uh, kind of a vacation out to California, got together without any kind of definite ideas about what I wanted to do or what, where I was going to do it. I spoke to Norm and said, what do you think about our maybe getting together? I have this contact with St. John Publishing Company. He seems to like what I'm doing. I think he'd like for me to continue to publish books. I think it would be a good idea if we could do this together. Norm said, fine. He came out to New York. We set the thing up. He had rented some places. I lived in New Jersey at the time. He rented some place in New Jersey, and we went to work. And you did a lot of different well, subjects. Yeah, I sure and, uh, did. <laughs> yeah, I did. I mean, you did 3D, you did Tor, you did Stooges. Sun, Sinbad. A lot of stuff, it's true. Did you consciously try and do as much variety as you could for the publisher? Yeah. When I got out of the Army, we knew that there was a lot of competition, a lot of titles on the newsstands. And so what we were kind of racking our brains at was to create some book that would either stand out or look a little different from everything else. While I was stationed in Germany when I was in the Army, I had come across a 3D magazine with photographs, and it contained these red and green glasses. And while we were talking, when I had come home, I said, gee whiz, you know, it'd be great if we could create a comic book, a 3D comic book with illustrations, so that the stories that we do would seem to pop off the uh, paper. And we looked at each other, nah, <laughs> how the hell are we going to do that? But uh, we went back to the drawing table, we went back to toss the idea between the two of us, and Norm had a brother, uh, Lenny Moore, who was more technically oriented than we. The three of us got together and we worked at it. We knew that 3D work could be done. We knew that it could be reproduced. The trick was to do it so that it could be sold at a feasible price. And that's what we did work out. Uh, we were able to put it together, including the insertion of glasses and putting that stuff together and sell the magazine for 10, 25 cents a shot. So you came back from the Korean War, stint in the Army. Was your partnership still in existence with the Army? It wasn't in any kind of formal existence, as I mentioned. When I got out of the Army, I took a trip out with my wife out to California, and we discussed the feasibility of our getting together and doing something on that basis. Norm had not tied himself up with any kind of heavy-duty work out in California, and so he was free enough to come back. The deal that we had with St. John was to put together our magazines, publish whatever it was that we wanted to do, and to benefit by whatever profits were generated from the books. Norm and I went ahead and did it. That's, those were the times when Alec 
Tulse was working there, Carmine Infantino was working, a whole bunch of guys. So what happened? Who did well until the hearings, until the Senate hearings. And as Will has mentioned, that was one of the real heavy dips. When people today talk about the comic book business looking like it's at the edge of a precipice and it's about to dive off, those times were really rough. And it probably came as close to signifying the end of the business as I can remember. Do you think about what you'd do if you left the business? never even bothered me a whit. Um, I've always felt all my life that uh, this business of being able to make a living drawing was probably the most fortunate thing that ever happened to me. But it never bothered me that if, you know, if I had to do something else, I would not stop drawing. That I'd never do. But to be able to make a living, hell, I'd that never bothered me at all. So did you end up going to D.C. after that point? But yeah, after the, uh, the bottom dropped out of the 3D thing and the comic book market was really suffering, and St. John actually went out of business, so I had to look around and see uh, what my next steps would be. D.C. was the biggest market, of course, at that time, the healthiest, too, and I was lucky enough to be able to start working up there. That's when I contacted Bob Kaniger when I showed him the stuff that I was doing, and that's when I started working full-time up at D.C. And we know over there you did a lot of war books, obviously, and you did Hawkman when it was brought back. A whole bunch of stuff. Which you obviously had done back in the 40s. Yeah. Are there any particular favorites out of any of the stuff? That no, you did? not really. My favorite stuff is the stuff that I'm working on. Uh, these were stories. These were not things that I wrote myself. These were stories that were written and scripts that I had to illustrate. In order to do that well and in order to do it so that I can enjoy what I'm doing, I try to invest myself completely and totally into the story. And I do consciously attempt to get the elements of the story that the writer has included and take it perhaps one step beyond that. Perhaps uh, uh, fasten in on the characterization or emotional content. Incidentally, those are things that I've learned from Mr. Will Eisner, uh, the really the master storyteller. And I learned early on that that's what this whole business is about. It's not a matter of doing pretty pictures. It's great if you could do that, but the whole call for our business is telling a story. We're communicators. We're storytellers. Now, you got to do a daily strip of one. Yeah. Now, do you think that that came about because of your work for the D.C. War Bones? Well, I can tell you exactly how it came about that I did this Green Beret strip. A guy by the name of Neil Adams, whom I didn't know at the time, had recommended me to the syndicate to do the strip. And uh, I was contacted under those circumstances. And uh, that's where it all started. I mean, has that been one of your goals at one point in your life? It had been early on, not only my goal to do a daily strip, but uh, probably the goal of every comic book artist at that time. Comic book cartoonists were not considered artists or it was not considered a really respectable profession at all. Most of the guys who were in the business early on were there, well, they had to make a living, but uh, perhaps the illustration business was a little tight. Uh, a lot of the magazines, the uh, the Post and a lot of the other magazines were going by the wayside. So the illustrators who were doing beautiful work there had to make a living somewhere. A lot of them came to comic books. They were not proud of the fact that they were doing comic book work. Most of the guys, most of the cartoonists at that time, if you ask them, what they were doing to make a living. Well, I, I'm a commercial artist, but use the term cartoonist or comic book artist? Never. That just wasn't done. So uh, there was a different kind of world at that time. Well, was doing a daily strip while it's cracked up to be? Or you... The daily strip was one that every comic book artist aspired to because that was respectable. That was something 
that was appearing in an adult kind of literature, a newspaper. Also, the guys who worked for newspapers at that time were making a hell of a lot more dough than anybody in the comic book business. So it was something that everybody aspired to. It came out every day. It was more current. Uh, when you're doing comic book work, anywhere from two to four months passed before your stuff was published. By the time your work came out, sure, it was thrilling to see your stuff in print, but you'd done that stuff like almost a half a year ago. In newspapers, it came out like every five or six weeks. It was out on the stands. The stuff that you'd done was very current. So there were a lot of uh, things that made it exciting. And yeah, most of us, including me, really aspired to do some newspaper work. That was early on. However, when I did the Green Beret, the blush was off the rose a little bit. The newspaper was at that time where there was a transition where instead of having a strip like Terry and the Pirates taking a whole spread across the newspaper page and maybe being four inches deep, they suddenly took on this postage stamp size. That's when that transition occurred. And ironically enough, today, it's just the reverse. You can make a better living in comic books. And the newspaper strip is an addendum. As far as I'm concerned, it's pretty meaningless uh, when it appears. There was a period of time when you became an editor at DC, and it looks like most of the covers that were done at DC were either yours or Carmine and Infantino's, and, and in some cases, I guess after that, uh, Neil Adams. How'd you like being an editor at DC? Quite different. I became an editor up at D.C., incidentally, as a result of a request by Carmine Infantino. Our relationship with Carmine goes way, way back. As a matter of fact, he was an usher at my wedding, and I'm now married to the same woman for over 46 years, so I've known him for a long time. We used to buddy around together uh, when we were younger and so on, even before I was married. Carmine had become the uh, editor-in-chief, publisher, president, uh, factotum of uh, DC Comics. And when that occurred, he had contacted me and asked me if I'd be interested in taking on an editorial ship. It also happened that I think it was the interim between when I left the strip and I was coming back into the uh, comic book business again. Bob Kaniger, who was the editor up there at that time, had become ill and under a hell of a lot of pressure as editor. Still able to write, but not really able to handle the uh, chores of being an editor. And so under those circumstances, Carmine had asked me if I'd be interested in being an editor. I said, sure, that'd be fine, except then living in New Jersey, I don't want to be uh, facing the kind of traffic. So I, we made an arrangement where my schedule would be, I'd come in two or three days a week. I'd uh, be in about 10.30 or so, missing the traffic coming in, and leave by 2.30 before the traffic set up. So it, they kind of set it up for me real nice. I was handling, at that time, all the war books, and when the Tarzan thing came in, I was handling that. And yeah, apparently, the only criteria for hiring anybody to do anything is if the book sells. Now, what makes it sell? You know, if you had the formula for that, you could be an instant millionaire. It's just a matter of hit and miss and luck. It happened that a lot of the covers that I did seemed to sell books. The uh, formula we felt at that time was 75% of the sale of the books really depend on the cover illustration. Based on that, apparently the covers that I was doing, and that Carmine did, of course, seemed to push the books into slightly heavier sales. And yeah, I did a hell of a lot of covers under those circumstances. I mean, the biggest thing that I remember was the fact that you decided to open a cartooning school. Yeah, that would happen 21 years ago. I'd always had in the back of my mind, as I had mentioned real earlier, the only way that guys like me, when I started out, could get the kind of information that allowed us to uh, work in the business was as a result of the help and advice from guys already in the business. Ours, this comic book business, is a peculiar 
edge of the commercial art field. And those peculiarities really demand certain abilities, inputs, and applications of the art form that are very difficult to come by if you try to pick this up yourself. It's almost like recreating the wheel. However, if you can latch on to a guy who's already in the business, he can tell you the kind of brushes to use, the kind of pencils, the sizes, how to apply yourself, what to do when you're focusing on a story and how to get the damn thing done because you're constantly living under the pressure of a deadline. And for a long time, I had figured, gee whiz, it'd be great if there were, instead of learning this stuff on a hit-and-miss basis, it would be great if there was one place that people who really had the commitment to want to do this work could come to learn it all. It was at that time, about 20 years ago, that my kids were grown up, married, out of the house. I have five of them, and thank God they're all, they're all out and good. My wife is a graduate of a business college, and I said, I asked her, you know, would you, do you feel you'd like to involve yourself in running a business at this stage because I was not prepared. I would not give up my own career. I've always made a living. I've been, I've never been unemployed in the past 50 or 60 years. I've been doing this work. There's not been one day, even when I was in the army, I was doing this stuff. So it wasn't to take the place. It wasn't to start a new career for myself, but rather because I felt that it, Jesus, it'd just be a, a damn good idea for people who wanted to, to get into the business to have a place to do that. And Muriel, my wife said, well, Sounds good to me. I don't have a heck of a lot to do. And I said, look, I'm not going to handle the business end of this. If I have to do that, I won't start this in the first place. I won't even consider it. But if you're willing to take on the business end, uh, taking care of the bookkeeping and the billings and all of that stuff, that'd be fine for me. I'd be involved in setting up a curriculum and figuring out the courses of study that had to be taken, getting the instructors and working. That's fine with me. That's what I do, but not the business end. It wasn't that I felt that I was incapable of doing I just don't like it. I just don't like doing that edge of it. My wife decided, yes, we would do it. And we kind of haphazardly looked around for a place that would suit our, our needs in terms of a building that would have the, uh, the rooms and the spaces for classroom and so on and so forth. And as luck would have it, we lived in Dover, New Jersey. And there was a, an old mansion that was about 100 years old that came on the market. The family that had lived there, one of the early settlers of the town of Dover, had died out, so to speak. This big 22-room or 23-room mansion came on the market. I was able to make a deal and purchase it. And that was the beginning of the school 21 years ago. Obviously, there are a lot of graduates from that school that are now in the business feel a great sense of satisfaction about the fact that you've contributed back to the business? I don't think of it even as contributing to the business. Well, it really is gratifying, and I never thought it would be when I started the damn thing. It's gratifying to see the efforts that the guys who came to the school had put out because it was it's not an easy school. Uh, the schedule that's maintained by people who attend. What I try to do was to start out as a two-year school. is now three years was to squeeze into those two or three years all the things that I had learned that took maybe 10 to 15 years. With me, it was a kind of a haphazard, catch-as-can kind of a situation. At the school, it's a consistent, pressured schedule all the time for them to get the information that's necessary. The guys that came through the school did so admirably, and none of them had an easy time of it. To see them doing well in the business now is really gratifying. And my greatest pleasure, I've got to tell you right off the bat, are my own two boys. That's like, you know, the cherry on top of the whipped cream. I mean, it's, I couldn't tell you how proud I am of them.
They came to the school. They asked to come to the school, which surprised the hell out of me. One of my boys, Adam, had already graduated from Rochester Institute of Technology as a medical illustrator. And incredibly enough, he got a job as soon as he came. He had a job before he got out of school. Terrifically talented guy. When he had worked at the job in maybe a couple of weeks, he said, you know, Dad, I don't enjoy this because I'm not drawing. All I'm doing is just rendering different kinds of drawings, photographs and so on and so forth. Would you let me come to your school? My son Andy, at the same time, maybe two years younger, had some sort of an interest in it, but really didn't do a heck of a lot of drawing. They both asked if they could attend. And I said, yeah, but you have to understand that I'm going to be tougher on you two guys than anybody else in the place. I'm not going to jeopardize what, this was 10 years ago. The school had already been in existence for about 10 years. I'm not going to jeopardize what mom and I have put into this. It took a hell of a lot of hard work because you two guys decided that you want to come to the school. The moment I feel that this is not really what you want to do and you're not putting the effort into it, you're out. That's the end of it. Okay, that was the premise for them attending. They were in my class. Uh, they did their homework because if they, they lived at home at the time. If they didn't do their homework, I would have, it, would have, it would not have been acceptable to me. So I'm, I'm real proud of what they've been able to do. Obviously, the first 10 years of getting the school uh, off the ground and getting it going must have been a lot of work and a lot of energy. So, uh, But I've noticed that in the last five years, you've had a couple of projects that you've done that were not just covers or bits and pieces here and there, but real stories, the Abraham Stone yeah. uh, stories that you put together. In fact, from Sarajevo, both of those are obviously very personal stories yeah. to you. Was Abraham Stone one of those things that you wanted to do for a long time? Yes, the Abraham Stone character that I eventually came out with, and I hope one day I'll get back to it to do some more stories. I've got a whole plan for his whole life, actually. I selected a period of time in the United States that I felt lent itself to some really exciting things occurring. The uh, Industrial Revolution was just starting. Cars were just being mass-produced. The movie industry was just starting. A lot of things were happening at that time, late 1800s into the early 1900s. So I hope one day I'll get back to that again. The um, fact story, as you've mentioned, was quite a different set of circumstances. I had known Erwin Rusinagic for 20 years. I had contacted him perhaps uh, seven or eight years ago. I, I would like to get back to a point again, as I had mentioned to um, Will, when I was lucky enough to get that award. I had spoken to Will about eight or nine years earlier from this time right now. And I had told him of my feelings that I'd like to get into doing some stuff that was more meaningful to me. And fortunately, just as Will was able to when he put out the, uh, his first uh, novels, he was able to financially not depend on that to be sold immediately or to take a break. He was able to take off a year to do it with the feeling that he could afford it. I, too, was, thank God, in that similar kind of a situation where I really wanted to seriously apply myself to some stuff that I had in the back of my head that I really wanted to get into that I could control completely in terms of story and drawing and everything else. I was editing up at D.C. I was trying to set the school up. It was at that time that I'd spoken to Will. Will was teaching at SV8, School of Visual Arts. He had asked me a couple of times to come up there as a guest speaker, and he in turn had come over to my school as a guest speaker. So our, our relationship over the years and from the time I was a kid has just been great. And he's always been supportive and helpful. And Christ, Joe, do it. Don't, don't sit on your can. Just make the time. And I, I asked him, like I said, about eight or nine years ago, I asked him, how the hell do you set your schedule up to be able to do what it is that you really want to do? Because I, I had found myself 
closed into doing a lot of stuff for the school and really not having enough time to do the stuff I really wanted to do. So Will said, you've got to take the time. You've got to, even if it means just cutting one day a week off, not getting any telephone calls, not getting any kind of business for anything else, and just concentrating on what it is that you want to do. And that's the way he did it. That's the way he did it for himself. I said, but then what do you do? How, how do you set up the publishing? I mean, what, how do you get that stuff set? He says, Joe, if you put the book together, if you have any problem with it at all, I'll publish it. Now that, whether he was serious about it or not, and I'm sure he was, I'm sure he was, but it kind of set me back and it kind of set me thinking that unless I really put myself to it, if I don't get this stuff done, it's nobody else's fault but my own, and I've really got to get off my rear end and, and get started on it. That talk really resulted in the first tour books that I did, the uh, uh, Abraham Stone book that I did, and eventually the uh, facts book. Do you have any concepts or ideas that you want to do in the future? I've obviously oh, yeah. gone through those three. I've got about, thank God, I'm in a fortunate position where I have projects that I'm involved with that will probably take, if I live long enough, for the next five years. I am tied up for the next five years. Every once in a while, my sons will ask me, hey, Dad, you know, I'm in a, I'm in a pickle. Can you help me out with this? Or you can do that. Or inking some stuff or working something. Or how about we're going to do some cards? That's that's the greatest thing in the world. That's the biggest kicks I can think of. So how does it feel to be, instead of Joe Kubert, from what everyone used to think of, as to being Adam Kubert's dad? Well, <laughs> Adam and Andy, it's uh, it's it's absolute. I could, I, I'm so proud of them. I could bust. But really, what I get a big kick out of is that somebody had mentioned. Every once in a while, if we'll appear at a convention, and that's very, very rare when we can all get together at the same time, their deadlines are horrendous. But somebody will say, uh, Joe Kubert, is that Adam's son? Is that, is that a brother? That's great. That's great. <laughs>